Hey all, just a heads up. This episode contains frank discussions of sexuality, sex, rape, and assault. So if you're sensitive to these issues, please be cognizant of that. It's a really good conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're talking with documentary filmmaker Erica Hart about her documentary, Gray Area, Exploring Consent, uh, which is going to be a really interesting conversation, especially here in Hollywood and with, like, the Me Too movement. But before we get into that, how are you doing today, Erica? Oh, goodness. I'm I'm doing well. Um, you know, I'm just starting my day, and it's, it's surprisingly gray outside in, yeah. today in L.A., so I think that... Um, that works really well for gray area. <laughs> so I want to get started by asking uh, a little bit about the documentary. You can kind of contextualize this for us and tell us sort of why you felt compelled to make this and explore this area. Sure. I mean, uh, I am a survivor of uh, sexual assault and rape, and um, I had this really amazing, um, fortuitous uh, happening to me. Um, that not a lot of survivors have. I was reached out by um, the man, one of the men, one of the many men who assaulted me. So after the uh, 2016 election, I was re- he reached out to me in my. We were not Facebook friends. We didn't know each other. Um, we knew each other one night when he the night he assaulted me. That's it. Um, and I looked in my other inbox of Facebook messages and happened to click on this message that was an apology. Mm. Um, and that's where this really started because that started a conversation between myself and John. And I don't think a lot of survivors get, um, if they do get to have a conversation, I don't know if it's always um, the conversation starts uh, with the assaulter reaching out to the survivor. And so I think that really created this like, space for conversation between us. Um, yeah. And how exactly did you did you structure the documentary? Okay, I mean, for a little bit more backstory, I mean, so John reached out to me right after the 2016 election. And in 2016 was when I was raped, n- not by John, um, a different instance. And, and so the night of the election, as the returns are coming in, I am uh, also drinking alcohol because I'm not being able to handle this. It was a hard night. <laughs> yeah. And it was a hard night for everyone. And um, and I take to Facebook, as I think we all did. And I, for the first time, I think I had told a few friends, but for the first time, I'm just like, I was raped this year. I was raped by someone I loved and trusted. And that was in, you know, all of these assaults that have already happened to me. That was in the beautiful Obama era. What are we entering into now if this is okay? And so I was was freaked out like all of us were um, in 2016 and or or still are. But um, and actually, John was so freaked out, too, that um, he he hadn't seen my uh, post about being raped. 
he was just so freaked out by the election that he was like, I want to be on the right side of history. I want to, you know, make people feel safe. But wait, I did something that made someone feel unsafe in my past. And I want to let her know that, you know, I'm here and just like make her feel heard. So it was really incredible. So I'm, 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 I'm circling to your question, but, um, but so, so that first interaction started in 2016. And then of course we found each other again in the Me Too movement. And um, we, we just had that little bit of exchange in 2016. And then when Me Too started, I think we realized our brains are so good at forgetting and compartmentalizing that both of us had forgotten each other's names. So we both had to scroll, scroll, scroll to November 2016 and be like, what's that guy's name that assaulted me that one time? And found the message and reached back out to him during Me Too. And I was just like, dude, like, this shit is heavy. Can I cuss? Yeah. <laughs> this shit is heavy. And, and like, I think maybe we could do something together. Like the fact that you've been so open, maybe we can have a conversation sometime. Um, and so we were gearing up during May too to have a conversation, meaning like just a Skype or a phone call. And right before we were about to do that, he was like, yeah, I can't wait. Like, this is going to be great. I'm going to tell you my whole life story. Mm. And I was like, dude, that's like another form of penetration, honestly. Like, I'm not here to hold that space for you mm -hmm. to tell me every, like, you know, every bit of your life. I need to I need to have this conversation on my terms. Like, it's I get to heal from this. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I put the brakes on it. Um and then I think I had enough space from the Me Too movement and having talked to John a little bit here and there, just Facebook messages. I hadn't heard his voice. I didn't remember what he looked like. Um, and I, I had enough space, I think, from that that I was like, you know, what if we could, you know, I am a documentary filmmaker. What if we could document this? Like, what if he would put his face and his name to what he did? Like, um, yeah, so I gave you the backstory. I didn't really talk about how I structured no, the no, doc, but I mean, I can... No, that's, that's good. Um, okay. I, I do want to ask, because you bring up an interesting point when you talk about the Me Too movement. And and I had a weird experience when uh, that whole thing went down where somebody called uh, Ivanka Trump the C-word. Uh, because I grew up in a very abusive household, and that was the word that my dad would go to when he was very... So seeing people up and down my timeline in a, a way that's trying to liberate and recapture that word, but seeing that word hit me in a way that I hadn't planned on. And I've noticed this because I've got a lot of other stuff from my childhood that gets dredged up by these discussions of assault and, and abuse, uh, that watching the catharsis of the Me Too movement is a different thing for people who are survivors and people who haven't fully processed that. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that because it, it becomes hard to want to participate in something and also be like, this kind of hurts. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I... I, I talked a little bit about this in my um, article I wrote for The Advocate. but um, Which was great, by the way. If you get the chance, check out The Advocate article. Yes, and, and love The Advocate. So um, check out all The Advocate articles. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, we're really into saying trigger warning and content warning, which are, are great things. I, I need those for certain things. But I the word trigger doesn't um, resonate with me. I don't think... Um, if I see rape or assault portrayed on, you know, Game of Thrones or something like in film, it doesn't 
immediately make me like lose my mind or I don't have to leave the room right away. It's so it's trigger to me is, you know, implies like this sharp, like quick. And to me, it's so much more like a slow burn. And that's what me too felt like. Like I just felt, you know, it wasn't like I couldn't get through my day. It wasn't like I couldn't still, you know, laugh and make jokes, but I just felt heavy. And I felt this like slow burn of anger and sadness and also you know what's really weird is like it was me too we were getting this chance to say me too we were getting this chance to be seen but I felt really unseen too which is so interesting but I think it was like you know I couldn't I knew I couldn't reach out to like a single female friend I knew that there wasn't a single woman I knew or female identifying person that I knew that was like not a survivor. But I do have some like straight cis male friends who are not survivors. And I remember being like, you know, if, if like, please reach out if you can, like reach out to me, reach out to your other female friends, reach out to your other survivor friends, your non-binary friends, like all the people that are definitely hurting during this time. And only one person did. Mm. And I was just like, this is so interesting. Like, I'm hurting, I'm hurting so bad. And yet my like straight male friends are too scared to even reach out. Mm -hmm. And, and what are they so scared of, you know? And what I, I, you know, and I, I, I don't think it's just laziness. I think it was just fear like fear of saying the wrong thing fear of like fear of the unknown fear of like how big my emotions might be and how how they wouldn't be able to understand so yeah I felt really like unseen and just grumpy about being unseen or mad that I couldn't find the support that I wanted and it was women that were already hurting so bad mostly women and survivors that had all this to carry that then had to carry each other too like the people that I thought had the emotional bandwidth to be supportive in that time were silent it felt like Mm -hmm. And it's something I noticed with a lot of the media entrances into this, you know, uh, like Amber Rose had her famous slut walk. Uh, Rose McGowan uh, was kind of at the forefront of the Me Too movement. But the the media and the, the public discussion we have tends to be this sort of spectacle. And it tends to not actually speak to or give space for survivors, especially when you're like, here's a stage with people and a lot of cameras come like show your uh, your pain, come like do your healing. It doesn't really seem to work. And it seems like your documentary is sort of an, an answer to that a response to like creating a safe space to have this conversation Mm, I mean that is what it felt like to me I mean I don't resonate with um like my pain as a spectacle very much anyways I but that does work you know that that is healing for a lot of people I'm not like discounting that but um that will never quite work for me and um I mean, I guess in a way I made a film about my pain so I guess it very much is a spectacle but um yeah I I, I mean, goodness gracious, I, I made this film already, like it's in post, but the production of this film and the pre-production was, it's so cliche, but it was life-changing. Like I have goosebumps even thinking about it. Like, yeah. 
And I want to hop into that because you had a lot of intention in the way you crewed up in even the Kickstarter rewards that you put together. Tell us about that process and why that mattered to you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I intentionally intentionally um, hired all female identifying people, um, which was so exciting. You know, I... I I was attempting with the Kickstarter to raise seventy five hundred dollars, which um, I launched it concurrently with production of um, of the actual piece, and and but I knew I felt pretty confident that I could get that, and so I knew that I had this opportunity to pay a a like a good day rate. It wasn't a a union rate, but it was like a very fair day rate to all of these women and female identifying people that cared about making this sort of media and and um you know if i don't know if all of them are survivors or not but all of them were amazing allies and supporters of me so i found this incredible crew and um and then also with the kickstarter incentives i reached out to um coaches and speakers and advocates and allies and um and all women except one amazing man up in um, Santa Cruz who um, does consent workshops with men. Um, so all these mostly women um, who offer different webinars and different um, services and different one-on-one sessions and different um, uh, talks that you that would be your reward as a Kickstarter um, backer about consent, about healing, about, um, you know, about trauma. Um, Because, you know, a t-shirt or a bag or a tote or whatever is great, but, um, you know, I just was hoping, like, with this Kickstarter, yes, I need to raise money for my film, but can we also advocate for further consent education and further conversation, or at the very least, like, personal healing. Like one of them is tarot card readings. Like that's not going to probably like further consent, but it's kind of fun and introspective and and gives people like you know, a little bit of I don't know, magical self-care, yeah. you know. <laughs> it, it's a bit of control over your own narrative, the the ability to contextualize your own life and sort of like bring some meaning to it. Um, and in a way that like I, I used to do tarot card readings. I always found it fun. Uh, but I want to kind of dive directly into saying the quiet part loud now. So what is consent? Hmm. You know, I'm not I'm not um, I'm not going to pretend like I am an expert um, from just being a survivor nor from making this film I still don't believe that I'm an expert on consent I still am confused about it I still think that um, I have let my boundaries be crossed and and that's not my fault but my boundaries have been crossed and I also believe that I cross boundaries myself Um, so I don't know. Like, I'm still learning. What I know is I'm trying. Like, that's what I know. I know that I'm trying to talk and ask questions constantly. Consent to me is check-ins at every turn, at every progression of, of anything, not just sex. Like... That to me is, you know, I'm trying to learn that I have 
I am really sex positive and I can speak about my body and um, my sexuality and my sex life really openly. Um, I can also, I'm like very open about being naked, these things, but that, those are my boundaries and those are not everyone's boundaries. And I think it took me a long time as, you know, a young woman that like came to my feminist awakening early and was like, sex, you know, as a young teenage girl in Nebraska, you know, I was like, yeah, sex, I'm going to take control of my sex life. Like I, yeah, you know, I'm sexual, like hear me roar. It's hard to then look at that and be like, oh, wait, you know, like me, it's fine if I feel comfortable with my naked body, but not everyone in the room does. And so ask how check in with people you know constantly constant check-ins about people's boundaries and people's safety and and people's feelings um well it's different i find working sort of in the entertainment industry as we both do but it's not just the messages that are sent by popular media but also a lot of the companies and the way that they're structured and the way that they work there are very certain sexual politics that are going on here in Hollywood. Um, And I find that they've sort of like I've ended up on the wrong side of that working for a guy who uh, is just a terrible human being at Defy. But those are stories that are pretty common throughout the entertainment industry. Do you see your documentaries as trying to cut back on that or this sort of like entrance into that media? You know, I I see Gray Area, my short doc, as I guess what we're saying is sort of like a post me too time. Like that's what we're in now, right? And and what I've seen is, um, you know, monstrous men, the ouster of monstrous men in, in our, especially in our industry, which, you know, is necessary. And those, those monstrosities do need to be called out. But I haven't seen, um, safe spaces created for people to say this is my worst mistake that I've made and I want to take ownership for it and I also am a complex human that has done a lot of other shit like a lot of good a lot of great a lot of like I've also struggled like I'm you know I'm just trying to live and be a human and because I know that there's a lot I I believe that there's a lot of survivors like me who don't want to see the complete teardown of their assaulter. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to see a Weinstein teardown of the men that have assaulted me. I have no interest in ruining anyone's life. And that doesn't just ruin their life. It ruins the lives of their family, too. The things that have been done to me sucked but they didn't ruin my life. In at least in my instances, they suck. They changed my life, but they didn't ruin my life. And I don't want to ruin anyone else's life. And I believe that, you know, I don't think every survivor should have this conversation like I did with their assaulter. I don't think it'll be productive or safe for every survivor. But in my instance, it was incredible. And I think John was able to come and and know that you know, I think he was able to put a lot of trust in me and know that he was supported and that, you know, he had created a safe space. And I mean, the interesting thing is he walked into this, you know, set, this shoot um, that was in my home 
that was in L.A. He's he's in San Diego, and this happened to me in San Diego. So he had to drive up from San Diego. It's all female identifying people on the on the crew, and it's all people that know exactly his worst mistake that he made six years ago. Whereas almost no one else in his life knows that. So he walks into this hot set of people that know exactly what he did, like. Oh my goodness, can you imagine walking into that, you know? And and yet we like we're all still holding space for him and like you know, we weren't handing him awards, but we we were there. Like I was definitely holding space for him. And and we had this amazing productive conversation that like was so healing for me too and and him as well I believe and and had we had I tried to just tear him down or had we just kept it compartmentalized like we had I don't think that same healing would have happened and and I think there are instances where we do just need to tear a monster down I think that's true and that probably is healing when it is a monstrosity but like I like my film implies, there are these these uh, assaults and rapes that get thrown into this gray area, where the details are a little murky, where you know we we put a value judgment on the severity of it, and and those are the ones that you know not only as survivors. Do we not think that the criminal justice system is going to do anything for us anyways? The criminal justice system, yeah, the criminal justice system would for sure fail me. Like, I wouldn't even get a court case. You pull up my Instagram with naked selfies and it's like, yeah, no, she's not like she didn't get raped. Um, So not only would it not work, but I don't want any of the outcomes that the criminal justice, justice system gives to me. I do not want to put anyone away. Anyone that raped or assaulted me, I don't want to see in jail, which is just a factory for creating more sexually violent people. I have no interest in that. So, of course, you know, I'm drawn to restorative justice. Like, and that's kind of, but we don't have restorative justice as like an option pretty much. So I took it into my own hands. Like, I basically did restorative justice with John. Um, I don't even know what the first the question was. <laughs> no, no, no. That's that's fine. It, it's it's amazing to me because I I'm big on prison abolition. You know, I have spent a, a great deal of the last two months like occupying a, a federal prison, um, and and the criminal legal system does not protect survivors of rape and sexual violence. You know, it's something like for every thousand rapes, seven people go to jail, like seven rapists. Like, you don't look to the police and the prosecutors to protect you in those instances. Yet that's kind of the solve that we have as a society that we sell ourselves in the Law and Order SVUs and like the different sort of scandalized uh, melodramas that we have. Uh, but even without the lack or even with the lack of people actually going to jail unless you're like Brock Turner or a high profile case, uh, men are still very afraid of this conversation, still very afraid, it seems, of this restorative justice that you were talking about. I'm happy you brought that up uh, because I'm trying to it doesn't seem as scary, the restorative justice, I guess. But people really are afraid of this idea of confronting another human being with this kind of vulnerability. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about negotiating that and where you see that coming from. Mm. Yeah, I mean. I do want to touch on a few things that you said, though, yes, first. Um, I 
you know, what a low bar for luck, but I was never assaulted in college. My first assault was John and and I was 22. Um, so I think of myself as lucky, but I do know restorative justice has gotten a bit of a bad name because it's been like a pseudo version of restorative justice has been used in campus assault and rape as like the the university trying to like save face. Yeah, because and, the the government has basically turned over that area of control to private universities who have a vested interest in making it look like they keep their students safe. Absolutely. So I do know that for a lot of survivors that might be listening to this, especially if it was like a campus situation, RJ has like a bad name and I hope that we can like change that because it 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 was the only like having this conversation with John is the only like glimmer of hope I could have seen in this situation but John like what happened with John and I his assault when he assaulted me I wasn't even sure if that was criminal like I I actually looked it up um, when he was at my home. We like Googled it together to see like if what he did to me was criminal or not. Um, I don't mean to laugh at that, but that's such a quirk of like technology and like, <laughs> yeah. it's just so many weird things coming together into what would what could very honestly be like an arrested development scene <laughs> with the right tra- soundtrack. Yeah, we like, I took out my phone and I was like, so Siri, um, <laughs> did John sexually assault me? <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I also like I really hope that restorative justice becomes more of an option with like restorative justice, justice professionals, because I was also raped and I would like to have a conversation, a healing conversation with him. And I would also like to make some demands Mm -hmm. of him. There are some things that I like I would like to see him like in therapy or, uh, you know, to stop drinking or things like that. I don't know how to go about that. Like with John, I I just wanted a conversation, but I have other assaults that I am not ready to tackle on my own, you know? And that's one part I, I think of restorative justice that gets lost a lot, especially because it's used as more of an arbitration sort of settling the issue, is that there should be some sort of consequence for the person who victimized another person. With John, there wasn't that solve there. But what are the kind of solves you want to see people discussing more on a, on a social level? Because as you've already pointed out, like alcohol, substance abuse, that very often uh, plays into these. If Either the person, you know, uses that to give themselves more of an ego boost or, uh, you know, just works themselves into a state where they're not fully in control of themselves. They get drunk to numb pain and then visit out that pain in, in other terrible ways. Yeah, I... I mean, I I don't know if I I guess I think of them as consequences, but more so in restorative justice, I think of them as, um, you know, demands from the survivor. Like, let them be survivor led, you know, and 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 what would really bring healing. And for me, like a lot of that, I would really like I would really like to demand to my that my rapist like have to learn about feminism and the history of rape culture and like the systemic oppression of women and of minorities like just have to learn these things because I feel like I feel like in the moment that I was raped 
I don't I don't believe in my instance that it was premeditated. I don't think he set out to do that. I th- and I don't know if he to this day thinks he raped me or thinks that he cheated on his wife and we had a great night together. Um, and so, but I think if there could be some learning, you know, if, if he could sit down for real and really think and be challenged of how he's like um, participating and perpetuating rape culture and these things, I, I think that could be like pivotal. But what I think is the biggest thing would be if he had to sit down and look me in the eyes mm-hmm. and talk about that night and hear from me that he raped me and and apologize to me or tell me you know his side of it mm-hmm. and that's what John and I did we told our our recollections of that night and 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 learned how they matched up and how they differed Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think uh, a little bit almost about uh, Kurosawa's Rashomon, which is all about different understandings and recollections of a sexual assault and how this, di- how all these different people look at it. And it's something that, uh, you know, from our working together at various post departments or no, sorry, at one post department, uh, we both have a habit of like calling out stuff that we see on a daily basis, like microaggressions, sexism. I, you know, have a lot of dudes that don't like me because I keep calling them out on that stuff. Uh, I kind of see it as like my duty because I'm willing to take that on. But how do you feel about that? Do you feel like it's a survivor's burden? Do you feel like it's something that people choose to take on necessarily? And what the role of that is? Like, do you feel okay educating every cishet white guy who calls their female colleagues girl? Mm. You know what's so interesting about that is I... I'm loudly I'm loudly a normalizer. I don't know if I'm a caller outer as much as a normalizer. So I want to loudly speak on what I see um, doesn't get talked about. I like to loudly um, one thing I know that I was doing at uh, you know where we worked together, I would say out loud like, oh, I'm so tired or my breasts hurt because I'm in the luteal phase right now. Like things that, you know, people don't say in the workplace, but I actually think should be talked about. Like I'm I'm on my cycle and today is like painful for me. You know, like I am a normalizer of things that I believe in. Um, But I think I get punished for that in a way that... um, I'm a normal, yeah, I get, I get, I mean, women are an easy target. A loud, bald woman (laughs) is a really easy target. And I don't, I see the policing of me. It's so interesting. Like every time I've ever been punished in my whole entire life, like I'm not a rule breaker at all. I was just with some of our friends actually. And it looked like a fun wedding. It was very fun, but uh, I might have taken a piece of pizza from Whole Foods, you know, and not paid for it. That is not me at all. When she when she took that pizza, I was like, I have never once not paid for anything. I follow every rule that like I follow the I follow everything. And um and I've just been thinking back to every time I've ever been punished in my life, it was because I was too loud or I was 
dancing with too much vigor or I was laugh my laugh was too loud or I was speaking about my body or my sexuality too much or I I was I seemed too flirtatious like I was leading the boys on like all of these things are just policing of the way that the things I'm comfortable and I feel normalized about are making other people uncomfortable um so I'm I'm I digressed from your original question. No, I think that that helps. We have a real like double standard for you know. There's the whole like, is he botchy, bossy? Is she bitchy? You know that that dichotomy still exists. I like um, botchy though. Botchy. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's it's a dichotomy that's very strange to me today. Uh, what I wanted to do to kind of take this out a level is you also have a pretty well established social media presence, mm-hmm. and you're very open as you've mentioned a couple of bits on there. But at the same time, that seems. Uh, like a fraught entrance uh, into the media landscape that you probably experienced or heard things from people that you don't know, perfect strangers on the internet. I was wondering about like what that experience has been like and how that's changed you or how that's made you less, more care more or less about like other people's opinion. Yeah, you know my my Instagram following is uh, primarily because I post body positive po- body positive selfies of me and and I have a lot of um, body hair and people love it men love it I recently um, my roommate convinced me to turn my Instagram into a business profile so you can see the analytics and I found out shockingly that like 80% of my followers are men and most of them live in Egypt who knew who knew Um, no but um, you know probably once a month I have some sort of freak out where I'm like why do I have this Instagram account that's all naked pictures of me? I need to shut it down. But then I remember that, like, actually how healing that Instagram account has been in my life for uh, loving my body, recovering from an eating disorder, and feeling ownership of my sexuality. And then I, you know... Maybe I'm mostly 80% reaching out to men who are jerking off to pictures of my armpits. I get it. Like, I get so many dick pics in my DMs, like, so many. And and I get that, but there is a good 20% of people that, like, do find empowerment and inspiration from the message that I'm putting out there that, like, hey – it is not a contradiction to me to post a, a selfie of my body and also be editing a documentary about sexual assault. Those two things, like, because I'm a naked woman on Instagram doesn't mean I deserve to be assaulted or raped, nor does it mean I can't speak about being a survivor. Um, I also don't think it's a contradiction to be, you know, preaching a feminist message whilst creating images of myself that are likely, you know, I did grow up in the patriarchy and the male gaze is stuck in my brain. So yeah, I'm I'm likely replicating the male gaze in a way when I'm creating these just like mirror selfies of myself. But I, I am a complex and complicated woman and these are images that I'm creating and I feel good about showing my body, you know, but what I love about, um, you know, this, my social media presence is it really does speak and touch a lot of 
other survivors, I think. A lot of, also a lot of people in recovery, um, in all sorts of types of recovery, because I'm in recovery as well and from an eating disorder. And um, it seems to, like, really speak to those people. And those are the DMs I I answer, not the dicks. (laughs) Um, Not the dick pics so much. Which, but at the same time, like, no, I don't think it's okay to send unsolicited dick pics. I personally don't think that's okay, but some men do ask me, like, can I buy your underwear or something? And I actually don't think that's an awful thing to say. Like, I think he's asking a question, and I think that's actually okay. Like, and I can just say no, and as long as that's the extent of it, then that's fine to me. I think, like, I reach a lot of a large community of men in countries where sex is really not talked about. Like, mm-hmm. there's a reason I'm reaching a lot of Muslim countries. Like, I think, you know, Instagram is this place where men in countries where um, there's not a lot of sex before marriage. Like, anyways, yeah. I digress. No, it, it, <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. It's something uh, when I was living in uh, the art house and it was uh, three guys and nine women. And that was probably the most... Uh, educational year of my life as far as getting comfortable with periods uh, because it was just talked about like women would come home at the end of the day they would you know kvetch about like it's a long day and I'm tired and this is going on and just realizing oh no this is like a regular part of like just the body and the cycle the other thing that I learned that really blew me away was we were just like we were cleaning the house one day it was me and like seven of the the female roommates and everyone started talking about dick pics Every single one of my roommates, even those who have almost no social media presence, are not super sexual beings like, you know, conservative don't they, people that you wouldn't think somebody would be like, oh, I'm just going to send that person a dick pic. It just happens so much. And it's this weird boundary because a few of them were like, yeah, I don't really care. I just more like wish that somebody would be like, hey, I want to send you a dick pic. And it's like, yeah, you can do that. Whereas just like bombarding my email address with it, it's like, I don't want to see that. I do feel a little bit assaulted because I didn't ask to see that. But it seems to come from a place of repression where we're very bad at talking about sex. Um, And what do you think – how can we get better at that? I mean, not that you're going to solve this, but what do you think people need to do to become better at at learning to ask and understand the other person? The person that is the object of their sexual desire is actually a subject and not an object. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think so much of – where we are in this country comes from like our puritanical like oppressive you know start of this country and 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 I think the more we talk about sex the the more we're going to solve rape culture honestly like um and I think you know the policing of me as a sex positive and sex sexual person is part of this fear that that Me Too created, honestly, I think. And I don't want to blame Me Too for any, like, oh, I love Me Too. Like, thank God. But I think we're policing anything now that is pushing boundaries and we're not able to say, wait, which boundaries are healthy or like which, which things do need to be normalized. Um, yeah, and like, on the topic of unsolicited pics, like, that's something I feel guilty of. Like, I've received a lot of unsolicited dick pics, but then I've sent nudes to people. No, they weren't just random strangers. They were people I was already sleeping with. 
But then I, I realized like, oh, I just sent that naked picture to a guy I slept with last night, but I didn't ask. Like he could be in a very different state of mind right now than last night. I need to ask permission to just flood his text message with a picture of my butt, you know? And so that's something I'm learning too, is like, just because, you know, as women, like, we've been told that like, oh God, a guy's gonna just drool over you if you send a picture of your body to him. Like, that doesn't mean everyone wants it. Like, you know, and, and so I'm learning that too. But yes, I think if we could just talk about sex more openly and more honestly, and we would just have such healthier sex lives. I mean, look at our sex worker friends and our um, friends in the porn industry are so much healthier than anyone else. Like, it's such, you know, such crazy hypocrisy when, you know, we don't talk about I feel I feel like a trailblazer because every time I am with a partner, I'm like, I have HPV. Uh, how is your sexual health? Like, I have had this many part. Well, I don't say how how many partners I've had, but you but- don't like break out Excel spreadsheet. You're like, by the way, I will be ranking you. Yeah, yeah. These are all your Eskimo brothers and sisters. Um, no, but I do say, you know, like this is my sexual health. This is the last time I was tested. And this is not unsexy that I'm talking about this. This is awesome. And, you know, if we're going to if we're going to progress like in each phase, let's talk about it. Also, we're grown ass adults. Like if you just had your dick in my ass, go wash it before you put it anywhere else. Like like just be grown ups. But we didn't learn. We were so failed. And there's so much unlearning. We're so failed that we don't even talk about stuff like that. You know, we don't even talk about like, hey, go clean up your dick so I don't get a yeast infection before you put like we don't even say stuff like that because we're so like prude. Even when we're having sex, we're prude. Even when your dick was just in my ass, we're too prude to to say anything like which is insane. Um, But I feel like a very I feel like a very I feel like an enigma. I feel like I've always been seen as the sexual person and yet I think that like, you know, which comes with a lot of slut shaming, came with a lot of slut shaming as a teenager, but um, in Nebraska, but um, but I feel like my sex life is, you know, so healthy Mm. because of that, like, and, and I hope and pray that everyone can like get to that place too, you know? What are your hopes for gray area? Um, What do you want to see happen? Uh, And also when will we be able to see it? Yes, so I'm in post right now, I'm editing it and um, I have high hopes for it. Um, You know, I just got a call from Vice HBO who are making something similar and they were reaching out to me to see if I had already shot or not to see if John and I could be their subjects. And I'm I'm actually so happy that it's, you know, I made this film. But it was also interesting to hear from them like, hey, I haven't seen anything else like this. And of course, Vice HBO is going to beat me to finishing it and they'll get it out. And that's great because, yeah, let, let's all have this. Like, I hope this is I hope this is a fucking trend that gray area is this conversation between two survivors and then it it blows up and like 
MTV makes the next like catfish, but it's but it's restorative justice of survivors and healers. I think it could be put in the wrong hands though, you know, but I just what I hope is, you know, I see I, you know, I don't I can't speak at all to this at, at all, but I have a good friend um from Rwanda who lives in Rwanda. Her whole family was or her father and her like male family members were killed in the genocide. And after that, you know, I mean, you would know too that there was just so many atrocities to deal with that then it was truth and reconciliation. Um, so much of the population would have to go to jail. So many people were implicated. You couldn't send the entire country to be incarcerated. That wouldn't fix anything. Absolutely. And so it was, it was people literally coming into like meeting and and saying this is what I did I'm so sorry and there were demands made on both sides and that's I feel like we the problem is so pervasive that we cannot I mean we could send every man to jail and honestly why not (laughs) no but (laughs) but the problem is so pervasive there's still so many assaulters that don't realize they assaulted or don't want to face it because our brains are incredible at creating narratives and we need to create safe spaces for everyone to speak about this issue from survivors to assaulters and and have these safe spaces with open hearts the way that gray area was you know i invited him into my home and and like I said, it was all women who knew exactly his worst mistake. And yet he felt safe and supported. And I told him, like, at any time that you need to stop, at any time that anyone on this crew needs to stop, that would be that would be such a faux pas on any other film set. But I said, any time that you guys need to just walk away, even if you're the camera person, even if you're the sound person, please, you guys take care of your needs first. And I think like our focus on our own needs first and then focusing on the needs of others in uh, in creating gray area was like a microcosm for how we need, you know, to be, to, to solve this all. Because I had no interest in, in John coming there and being torn down. I had interest in him being heard and for me being heard and seen and and then, you know, us moving on, you know? It's not like we were best friends after that and then we went and got beers. Yeah. I said goodbye to him, but I did hug him goodbye. And now, you know, I've texted him here and there. Um, actually, yesterday was the first day I brought myself to watch his interview. Mm-hmm. So he was interviewed first before he was brought down to have a conversation with me. And he was interviewed by a friend of mine and... I was not in the room. I was not there. And so I watched his interview for the first time ever yesterday. I'd been like working up to it and I didn't want to do it. And I was, I had to text him yesterday. He's heading to Burning Man right now, but I had to text him last night and say, you know, before you go to the burn, um, (laughs) uh, I just wanted you to know that you and I said such similar things it's incredible that we hadn't met yet and we said almost the same things about hope for humanity and just wanting to create spaces where people talk and listen with open hearts and that being like 
such a solution. And it was so beautiful that he had said those words that I said in my interview. And we had, you know, we hadn't, we didn't know. We didn't even know each other really yet. So, um, yeah. So also gray area. I have high hopes for it. Um, I think I am going to try to do festivals and uh, potentially like a short theatrical run here if possible. I mean, it's a short documentary. That is a, a sticky thing to try and sell, but I think it's, you know, it already changed my life. So if it gets a hundred views or, you know, or, you know, millions, it, like it already changed my life. So that is, I mean, it's just beyond for me, but I would love if it could be a surrogate for other survivors that can't have this conversation, aren't ready for this conversation, um, and could be a surrogate for other assaulters mm -hmm. that can't have this conversation, aren't ready for this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I hope it can be, you know, healing for us all. Mm -hmm. it, 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 one of the things that I've learned uh, that's probably the most radical lesson I've learned in organizing and activism this last year is that as complicated as people are, uh, the best solutions are generally the most simple, that we do a lot of a lot of work to to overcomplicate and make things harder and remove ourselves from the actual issue and radical simpleness radical just communication and humanity goes so far in just beginning to give us the baseline to work from because there's a lot of work from there the the simple conversation is the start but it's so hard to get there and i wanted to say Thank you very much for wanting to explore this. And thank you very much for like having the courage to do that and being comfortable with yourself as out and like loud and fantastic as you are. Because <laughs> not everyone has that or is comfortable with that. And you've really seized that and made something that I'm really looking forward to seeing. And just knowing about the process really excites me a lot. So thank you very much for coming in and joining us. And uh, thank you very much for making this. Thank you so much, Tim. <laughs>